All right, we'll be reading Acts chapter 28 and then reviewing back in 27. Acts chapter 28. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us, everyone, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said amongst themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly, but after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also, which had diseases in the island, came and were healed." who also honored us with many honors, and when we departed, they laden us with such things as were necessary. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the island, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Ricrium, and after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Putioli, where we found brethren, and were desired to tarry with us seven days, and so we went towards Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Appiaphorum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together, and when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hand of the Romans, who, when they have examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as for concerning this sect... We know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not amongst themselves, they departed, after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing they shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. 
For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understanding with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when they had said these things, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning amongst themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And thus is the reading of God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful that Thou hast set Thy word before us, and we are thankful that Thou hast opened our ears that we might hear Christ and open our eyes that we might see the wondrous things that He hath done. We would ask again that You would do it this morning, that we might behold Christ and He be glorified in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, I wanted to say, um, I wanted to review 27 again because I wanted us to appreciate uh, some of the things that were taught in that section because... When you can appreciate how the Lord presents uh, the gospel and how he has um, placed himself everywhere in the scripture, I think it opens up a lot of other portions of the Bible uh, to you. You know, in the book of Galatians, he speaks about Hagar and um, Sarah as being allegories of the two covenants. And so with that in mind, you can appreciate that God has placed himself everywhere in the scriptures, which indeed he says he has. So when we looked at uh, 27 last week, I, I kind of... Um, I don't think I presented it as uh, definitive and organized as I could have, but this morning I want us to appreciate that this section, as are many sections of the Bible, are written on three different levels. Uh, The first section is just one of um, history where we can appreciate uh, uh, an interesting sailing adventure that took place uh, 2,000 years ago, and because it's written by God, we know that it's certainly 100% accurate in all of its um, uh, details in terms of uh, the... um, the, uh, the shipping lanes in terms of the uh, wind and the weather and the currents that the people suffered and the uh, time it took to move from uh, city to city via, via a sailing vessel, um, the hardware that was available on the ship, the things that they might do when a storm came upon them. And we saw um, all of those things. And so with respect to simply the historical context here, we can appreciate that it opens up and we see that the grace um, that this centurion affords to the Apostle Paul. I mean, I think he appreciated that Paul was innocent. Perhaps he was present uh, during the last uh, trial of Paul. Um, uh, But he offers uh, Paul uh, much grace. And uh, you see that in verse 3 of Acts 27 here, that uh, uh, Paul is afforded the opportunity to visit with friends uh, to refresh himself, and that's when they get at Sidon. And we've talked about this in the past, particularly in Acts chapter 12, that you can appreciate the... uh, the nature and the um, <clears throat> degree to which a Roman soldier is held responsible for the prisoners in their custody, that if the prisoner gets away, the centurion himself would be killed. And we saw the gospel in that in terms of the gospel of substitution, where there will be one who pays for the crime. If it's not the prisoner, then it's going to be the one who is the prison um, keeper. But he obviously he trusts Paul. Paul is innocent. He's going off to Rome. And so when he gets there, he allows him to go visit with his um, friends where he's refreshed. Paul could have left. You know, he could have walked in the front door and then walked out the back door and said, I'm kind of done with all of this. Um, but he doesn't. And you so see him a little bit here as a type of Christ because you know that when Christ was in the garden when he was arrested, 
when they asked him who he was, he identified himself. You know, when they said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? He could have said, well, no, he just he went that way. You just missed him. But he didn't do that. He allowed himself to be bound and, and taken to the cross. Um, in verses 6 and 11, um, we can appreciate that the centurion has some authority over this ship. You, you pick that up here in verse um, in Acts chapter 27, when there's a conversation <coughs> about whether or not they should continue with the, voy- the voyage, obviously they confer with the centurion. You see that in verse 11. It says, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So Paul is, is um, telling them that this is going to be a difficult voyage, and the centurion believes the people that are responsible for the ship, the master of the vessel, which you can appreciate why he would do that. I mean, Paul is not a mariner, and these people are. But the fact that the centurion is party to the conversation helps us to appreciate the compulsory nature by which an, uh, the centurion might exercise authority over the vessel. Now, there's 276 people sailing on this vessel, so it's not like there's, there's just an empty ship standing around somewhere, and you know, we'll just go on it, and, and it'll take us up to Rome. Um, we're going to see that the other two ships you know, have full cargoes, um, but also when they get on the island of uh, Melita, verse 11 of Acts chapter 28, there was a ship that was wintering on that island you know, f- for, the, uh, for that season for three months, and yet that sh- vessel is used to take them um, up to Rome. I, I wouldn't think that that ship was sailing empty and had found itself wintering there as an empty vessel, but uh, had brought some cargo there or with the intention of also heading up to Rome because that was its destination. It came from... Alexandria was going up to Rome. So they must have displaced um, the, pop, the people that were on that other vessel. So we can see, again, pick up a little bit of the political climate uh, in terms of the way Rome conducted itself amongst uh, all of that, that region, over the region by, over which they had authority. So is this just from the historical context in Acts 27 here? We see that the, the uh, ship suffers the wind and the weather patterns and the currents unique to the, that geographic region. And how you needed to be very patient if you were going to go on a cruise because you might not end up where you think you are because the winds might be contrary to where you're going. In this case, they end up for three months island in the island of Melita. So you better have some flexible travel plans if you're going to go by sea because you're going to spend three months waiting out uh, the weather. Get down to verse 14. We heard about the uh, weather system they called the uh, Iraqladon. And we talked about that word last week. It's an interesting word, so I looked it up. It turns out uh, that word is actually a, almost a direct transliteration from the Greek. It comes from two words, euros, which means east wind, and the word kludon, which means a wave. So they've, they took the word in the Greek. In the Greek, it's eurokladon. That's how you pronounce it. And it means wind and wave. And so um, that's a, certainly an appropriate word. It's in the Greek. And it means, obviously, a tempestuous weather system that would stir up the ocean to a dangerous degree. Now, something that we should appreciate in terms of what troubles this vessel suffers is that it was probably an extremely rare occurrence in those days that a ship and all of its cargo would be lost and not one soul was lost. That's very unusual. Every um, account of a ship... Uh, sinking or or landing on a shore or uh, I should say breaking up on the rocks, uh, somebody is lost in that that process. They lose most of the people and very few actually make it to shore. But in this case, they lost the entire cargo, they lost the entire ship, 
but yet not one person was harmed in it. Clearly, that's a miracle. Um, and we see here, as it continues, that they run it aground, that the ship runs aground where two seas meet, uh, where a creek comes off the island of uh, Malta. So, very interesting sailing story. The second level this is written on would be a, a metaphor for the Christian pilgrimage. And here we can appreciate that um, because they depart from Caesarea, that means uh, severed, it means to be set apart. Uh, it, in this context, it would be being sanctified from before the foundation of the world. And so we see that that's the true life of the Christian, is you are set apart under Christ from before the foundation of the world, but you don't experience that until such time as you become a believer and the Holy Ghost then um, indwells you. And so they get off <coughs> to a rather poor start, <coughs> excuse me, in the Christian walk, and they depart from Adramitrium, which means not in the race or shall abide in death. And that's the uh, condition of all men, is they are not in the race, they are going to abide in death unless they are placed into Christ. We see here the interesting language, uh, but you'd have to look into the Greek here. It says here, I think, um, I'm trying to find the verse in 27, that they sailed over the sea, but the Greek is actually they sailed through the sea. And so it is for the Christian, or, or, as we go through this world, until such time as the Lord actually pulls us out of it experientially, we are making our way uh, in this world and we are blind to our condition. So this ship... Um, does not take them to where they need to go. It doesn't have a specific destination stated about it, whereas the other two ships come from Alexandria, which means man defender, and their destination is Rome, which means strength. And so it is for the Christian is that we are in Christ. And then you notice the second ship and the third ship, the centurion places them in the ship. And so Christ places us in himself, or you could say that the Father places us in the, the, the Son. And when we are in Christ, of course, we are certainly assured of reaching our destination, which we see take place here. So just as um, we read about in John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is likened unto a wind, we see that this ship is driven by the wind to exactly where the Lord wants it to go. And while they think initially they're going to Rome, God has other plans because he obviously wants the gospel to be brought to um, the island of Melita. And you'll recall when we're reading in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, that the Lord uh, was going to go to Galilee, but he must needs first go through Samaria, where he uh, met the woman at the well. And, of course, the Gospel was preached to the Samaritans. And so it is for us. The Lord has places where he is um, intending us to go and where we will, in fact, go in our pilgrimage through this world, though we might think we're going somewhere else. In order to get there, he'll send us wherever he needs us to go. Now, as part of this pilgrimage, we can appreciate that as they advance here uh, with the storm uh, and the trials and tribulations of this world, they have to throw their stuff overboard. And that takes place in three different phases that you have to let go of your stuff in this Christian world. You have to let go of the things that you cling to. You have to look, um, let go of the things that you uh, trust in. And so uh, we see that they take this lifeboat on board, which they eventually are going to have to cut loose because ultimately you will trust only in Christ. I mean, the scripture says that he that would save his life will lose it, and he that will lose his life for the gospel safe will save it. And so that's what we see developing towards the end of this as they uh, eventually have to cut loose that lifeboat because the... Um, the Lord speaking through Paul says, you know, except they remain in the boat, ye cannot be saved. No one is going to be saved if those people get away. And those men will not be saved um, either. So 
as things develop and things get that worse here, um, once they reach the point where they have no hope uh, that they can save themselves, that's up in verse 20, and I'll read that. And when neither the sun nor the stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. In other words, all hope that you might save yourself. That's Acts 27, verse 20. All hope, that they, all hope that they can save themselves would be lost. And so in terms of your Christian pilgrimage, as the Lord continues to reveal his nature to you and your nature to you about your depravity, at some point you begin to let go of everything and you begin to appreciate that the only way um, to glory is through exclusively through Christ and that I cannot look to myself and trust in myself by any means. So they've lost their ability to navigate they're being blown. Their fear is that they're going to be blown down into the uh, quicksands. And so they've lost all hope. And so what do people do when they have lost all hope? They finally look to Christ exclusively. They go to prayer. And, of course, that's not the way we should conduct ourselves as mature Christians. We should go to prayer first. But that's not how things work in the uh, actual experience of Christians as, as they are um, growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once they lose hope in themselves, then they look to Christ. And so that we see in verse 21 where Paul has abstained, um, absented himself from the people. And where has he gone? He's gone to prayer. And when you're in prayer, that's where you get the reassurance from the Lord. And that's where he uh, received his reassurance um, that uh, they would not um, lose, suffer the loss of any people. Uh, but they will suffer the loss of the vessel. And so... Um, as a Christian, you know that your body is going to go into the grave, but your soul and your spirit shall go to be with the Lord. And people cling to this life until the very end of it. And uh, Satan uh, shares that with the Lord, something the Lord, of course, already knew in the book of Job when he says, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give to save his skin. And so people cling to this world, they cling to this body um, until the very end. But the saint should not cling to this body nor cling to this world, but be looking uh, to glory. And um, so that's as the um, revelation of their situation develops, just like it does in our Christian uh, life, in our Christian walk, we let go of this world and we start looking more towards glory every day as we get older and grow in Christ. Uh, we can appreciate the temporal nature of this world. Uh, scripture says that that which is visible is temporal and that which is invisible is eternal. And so we begin to appreciate the eternality of future glory and the temporal nature of this world. Um, we see here that they are going to spend three months on the island of Melita and uh, three days in Syracuse, and the number three represents God's purpose. So we can appreciate that it's God's purpose that they would be there and they would uh, probably preach um, the gospel in those locations. No doubt they preach the gospel in Melita and probably up in Syracuse as well. They spend seven days in Puccioli, where they find brethren uh, refreshing, no doubt, and so it is with our Christian walk that we um, appreciate the fellowship of the saints because we are refreshed uh, by that, and we'll talk about that more in a minute here. They get more fellowship at Epi Forum and the three taverns, and eventually they get to Rome, which means strength, and so it is that we will ever be with Christ, and that's where the story ends in terms of Paul's uh, pilgrimage. Representing ours. And the third metaphor is uh, it's a picture of the gospel set before us here, 
where we have the incarnation of Christ, we have his death, burial, and we have his resurrection in terms of the ship represents him. And that's not a novel idea. Uh, it's in, I think it's First Peter chapter 3, where it talks about the ark as a type of Christ uh, that Noah was in. And this, how about how the eight souls were saved um, from the wrath of God um, through, uh, they were saved um, by being in the ark um, through the wrath of God as represented by the um, the seas at that time when God poured his wrath out on the world and destroyed all air-breathing life. So that's not a novel idea that these ships would represent um, Christ. We, the second, as I mentioned, the first ship doesn't take them to their destination. They are on that ship. I'll put that word in quotes. The second and third ship, they are in that ship. Both of those ships are from Alexandria, which I said means man defender. And who is the greatest defender of men? It's Christ himself. Yes, he is the uh, one mediator between uh, man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints, so he is the man defender. Um, the destination is Rome. The destination of both ships is Rome. We see that the second ship suffers great distress. We know that it's bound, literally. They wrap ropes around it as bound, as Christ was bound in the garden. Um, it is driven by winds. The winds represent the Holy Ghost, and so... God determined that Christ would go to the cross. We read about that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where we read in verse um, 23 of Acts chapter 2, him, meaning Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So, um, God determined that the Lord would go to the cross, but nevertheless, he holds those who crucified him as responsible for it. And so we see here also the wicked hands of these men that would flee the ship were the ones that were necessary, that were needful, that they would uh, strike the proper sail and put the anchors, put, uh, cut the anchors loose, get the rudder back down where it needed to be, and actually drive the ship where it needed to be, where it would be stuck fast. This, we found, happened on the 14th day, not a coincidence. That's the same day the Lord went to the cross when he was killed on the 14th day of the first month. Um, and just like this, ship is driven with great purpose to where it needs to be. We know that the Lord um, set his face like a flint uh, when he went to the cross. That's in Isaiah chapter 50. Um, he says in verse 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, he says, I gave my backs to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and know that I shall not be ashamed. The Lord set his face like a flint and went to Calvary. And so we see this ship being driven with great purpose um, to where it would be, uh, where it would stick fast and where it would uh, be broken apart. Um, the ship suffers the wrath of God and is broken apart. And you think of the Lord at the Lord's table. It says, this is my body which is broken for you. And think about what's written in Isaiah 53, where, which we've talked about and read in the past. And so all those in the ship were saved. All that the Father hath given to me um, shall come to me, and all that come to me I shall raise up at the last day. We were talked about that in the Gospel of John last Sunday. And so the Lord loses none. None on this ship were lost. And I shared with you how rare that must have been, that a ship and all its cargo would be lost, but not the people on it. So three months later, um, we see that they're all taken to their destination in Rome. This, the ship 
Second, uh, the third ship is also of Alexandria, same destination, <clears throat> and it's we see this little interesting detail in uh, 28 that it says that the ship was there the entire winter, and so we might not always feel the presence of the Lord, which we should, but we might not. He is nevertheless with us, as he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and so that sh there was the ship, the vessel that was going to take them to their destination was always with them when they were on the island. Um, and so uh, that concludes 27, Acts chapter 27. But I wanted us to see that. You'll find that in so many places in the Bible that it's written on three levels. There's a historical, and then you'll see the gospel in there, and you'll see how it applies to us uh, as in terms of our walk, and then you'll see it on a spiritual level where it's speaking about the, the work of Christ. So here we are in Acts chapter 28, and they are on the island. It says here... Um, that they had, um, when they were escaped, and that's what Melita means, it means escaping. They've escaped death. They've uh, survived the wrath of God, and they've escaped death by virtue of the fact that they stayed on, this, uh, on the vessel. Um, we uh, can appreciate that we would escape the wrath of God as Christians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we read, For God hath not appointed us unto, the wrath, unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these men were not appointed to suffer the wrath, but were appointed unto salvation, and they were put in the ship. And the ship suffered the wrath and broke up, but they escaped. Verse 10 of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, speaking of Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And so it is with the Christian, we have unity with Christ, whether we are in the body or out of the body, to sleep would mean, here in context, means to die. So whether we are alive or dead, we are ever with the Lord. Then in verse 11, he says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And so we see this mutual comfort and edification taking place um, in verses 13, 14, and 15, where once they land on um, the peninsula of Rome, they meet and run into other Christians who come and join them, um, join Paul and his company. Now, in verse 2, um, we can appreciate, it says here, that those that uh, they have escaped his wrath now are the recipients of mercy and, and grace. It says the barbarous people, and they use that term barbarous people, meaning they spoke neither Greek uh, nor Latin. Um, they spoke whatever language was in, uh, native to that particular island. It says they showed us no little kindness. For they kindled the fire and received us, everyone, because of the present rain and because of the cold. Keep in mind, there's 276 people that they're taking care of here. That's no small burden, you know, when you're living on a, a small place like this. It would be no small burden for anybody to have to deal with 276 people that were cast upon your shore. So we appreciate that the Lord sustains his people as they go through this wilderness, as he indeed he did all through the wilderness wanderings of the Hebrews once they came out of Egypt. He took care of them. He provided for them. But I think we would all admit he might not provide for us in this custom and style that we might like. <laughs> There's some pretty poor Christians, but he'll get you to glory, and that's all that matters. He gives you what you need, not what you want. Uh, I think... Uh, Spurgeon said in one of his um, accounts on his morning and evening prayers that if there was something better for you, God would have given it to you. Something better for you in particular, you would have it. God always does what is for our very best. He's ever shaping us as the uh, potter shapes the clay 
and working with us and giving us what is best for us. So what is best for you is not the same thing that is uh, what's for my best. Each person is very much individual and has an individual and uh, particular and loving relationship with the Lord. And he's working with each person and gives to each person exactly what is best for them. So uh, we appreciate here that he's taking care of um, our uh, the people that have come out of the ship and they are seeing God's grace and his mercy as he's providing for them, which he will do when they depart the island as well here. And when you get down to verse 10, it says, who also honored us with many honors when we, and when we departed, they laden us with such things as were necessary. So they get all, everything that they need while they're on the island. In addition to that, once they depart, they give them things that will help them on with the rest of their um, journey. Um, now, looking down at verses 4, 5, and 6, <clears throat> there is this discussion about divine judgment or divine judgment, suffering vengeance of the Lord. Verse 4, and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast, Paul has gone out and he's gathered some sticks to place onto the fire. Keep in mind here and think about Paul here. Um, you know, Christ is everywhere in the scripture, and we also see him in the, in the things that the apostle Paul does. He's just been cast on this island. You know, these people are, are, obviously he's exhausted. And what does he do? He does the same thing we see the Lord doing all through the gospel, all the way up till he's on the cross, up until the point where he commends his uh, spirit uh, to the Father. The Apostle Paul is serving and ministering to people. So while there's 276 people there, and plus the people on the island, who's the one going out and gathering sticks? Paul has gone out and gathered sticks. I mean, the others might have, but we only read about it here because the Lord is trying to teach us something here. So we see um, the Apostle Paul behaving very much like Christ, which he did his entire life from the point where uh, the Lord um, opened his eyes and revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. He's ever sacrificing himself and um, serving um, the Lord's people. So we see taking place here in terms of what happens with the venomous beast, we see the fulfillment of that which is written in the end of the Gospel of Mark, which um, there are many people that take this out of context. In the end of the Gospel of Mark, it talks about you know handling uh, drinking poison and handling uh, poisonous snakes, um, which no one should ever try to do. I'll pick that up in verse 15. This is the Lord speaking to the disciples in Mark chapter 16. And he said unto them, the Lord speaking, Go ye into all the world, which they are certainly doing on this ship here. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. No doubt the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel wherever he goes. Verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I just want to make a comment about that because this completely undermines the idea of baptismal regeneration. Faith is what is required to save a person here. So what they're talking about here in terms of this baptism is not the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Remember, baptism can mean four, at least four different things in the Scripture. Baptism of the Holy Ghost is necessary for salvation, but baptism in water is not necessary for salvation. It is a sign of a good conscience towards God, and it's a desire to identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But Faith absolutely is required, and so that's why this is worded the way that it is. He that believeth not shall be damned. Verse 17, And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, that means by my authority, shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, 
Notice that's not unknown tongues, that's new tongues, meaning what we saw take place in Acts chapter 2 when people spoke with known languages, the opposite of what took place at the Tower of Babel in the context of they will speak with languages that will, they will go out and be able to communicate the gospel. But on a spiritual level, it means that when we are sharing the gospel one with each other, you and I know what we're talking about, but an unregenerated person doesn't know what we're talking about. They, they, they think we're nuts. They, don't, they can't understand it because it's an unknown tongue to them. But to us, it is a known tongue. We are speaking the words of Christ. And if you're a Christian and been regenerated, you have ears to hear those words. Um, verse 18, they shall take up serpents, <clears throat> which we're seeing Paul do here. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall um, not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and recover. To drink something deadly, uh, drinking is um, sometimes synopsis. Drinking water is sometimes synopsis with uh, receiving the gospel. And so as a, uh, as a born-again Christian, um, people will put a false gospel in front of you, but you should be able to work your way through that, and it will not harm you. It will not poison you, although it can lead you astray and cause you to stumble. It's not going to um, um, put you in a spiritual grave. It's not going to harm you eternally. You'll, you'll be able to take it in, and you'll reject it. Um, and so to lay hands on a serpent would be to show that you have dominion over, over Satan, and his kingdom, which it talks about in the book of Romans, which I'll get to here in just a minute. I'll quote a verse from that. So um, we see that taking place here in verses 4, 5, and 6 of Acts chapter 28. And we see uh, this idea of God's divine justice. And so people have an appreciation of that because uh, in Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, it talks about how there are certain things that may be known of God through the creation, including his eternal Godhead and power, and so that people have this idea in the back of their head, no matter how they might try to um, um, push it away, that they are going to face judgment. They're going to have to deal with God. And that's why people are afraid to die. That's why they'll give everything up to save their lives. They don't want to go. They don't want to. Way back in, in their minds, they fear judgment from God. So we should appreciate as Christians that there is, in fact, justice. There is justice, not necessarily on this world. Sometimes, you know, there is good temporal just, uh, justice and judgment. Somebody will do a crime, and they'll spend some time in prison and have to pay for it, make restitution. But a lot of people get away with committing crimes for which they are never held accountable for in this life. They will uh, be held accountable um, for God, before God. Um, we can appreciate here, they say in verse 4, that's speaking of Paul, says, and when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said amongst themselves, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. Uh, Paul was in fact a murderer, and he did escape uh, justice, or judgment rather, because his sin was imputed to Christ. All his sins were imputed to Christ, who then did suffer under the wrath of God, as it is indeed for all of us. Our sins were imputed to Christ, and he did suffer. God is just, and he does not let the guilty go free, and he does not punish uh, the innocent. So we are innocent. Christ was guilty and punished on our behalf. In the book of Amos, in chapter 5 and in chapter 9, the Lord speaks about this in terms of how nobody gets away from him. In Amos chapter 5, verse 18, he says, "'Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord.'" To what end is it for you? This is about people saying, well, we want the Lord to come. And he's like, well, you really need to think this through. Unless you're a Christian, it's going to be the most grievous time in the history of the world. 
So he says, what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Verse 19, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, jumping, you jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, or went into the house, thinking you're safe, of course, and leaned his hand on a wall, and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? You cannot get away from the Lord. You think you're going to flee into a safe place, you'll lean against a wall and a snake will bite you. Um, when the uh, COVID-19 first hit, somebody sent me a sermon called Safety Behind Closed Doors. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you crazy? You think you're going to stay home and, and not get the COVID virus and not get sick and wear a mask? No, that's not what the Bible says. You can't hide from God. In Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, <clears throat> I turned it off after about five minutes. I'm like, click, no. There's no safety behind closed doors. There's only safety in Christ. Um, Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4 says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, and the doorpost may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell... Thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. You can imagine people fleeing in every direction and the Lord saying, no, I will get you. Verse 3, and though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword and it shall slay them. And I will set my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. There is no getting away from the Lord, not in this world or in the next one. Although, as I said earlier, that he does let some people get away from, with it now, but not when they come before the judgment throne of God. They will be cast into the lake of fire, and the Lord will deal with them according to the fruits of their doing, according to their sin, and then all the evil that that sin bore. Now, we see here, uh, Paul is going to be a type of Christ in that he's going to throw the serpent into this fire. And so we should appreciate that that is the uh, end of uh, Satan in terms of that's where the Lord is going to uh, put him. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says that, quote, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. And so that is how the Satan shall be dealt with at the end of time. The Lord shall throw him into the lake of fire. Now, as Christians, the Lord has um, given us um, power over the devil in the context of when we go forth and preach the gospel. Of course, the Lord has to protect us because we know that the Satan makes war with the saints, Revelation chapter 12, and it says that he overcomes them, and that's in the big picture. But un until... Um, when the Lord has something for you to do, nothing can keep you from accomplishing that task. Not Satan, not anything, because the Lord will make a way for you to do the things that he wants you to do. Um, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says in Romans 16, 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The context here is that as we go out and... Um, 
preach the gospel, we are essentially trotting Satan under our feet because we are pillaging his house. And you see that here in terms of uh, where Paul is going. He's actually going to go to Caesar's house and preach the gospel there. And Caesar then shifts to a type of Satan, and he is uh, plucking um, people that are prisoners of Satan out of his house. Satan is likened under the strong man's house here. So we are told to uh, submit ourselves to God and to resist the devil, and in so doing, resisting the devil, it says here that he will flee uh, from us. So Satan has been destroyed by, um, and his works have been destroyed by virtue of Christ going to the cross. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. In Hebrews 2, 14, we read, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Um, and so we see that taking place here in a spiritual context when the serpent bites the apostle Paul and Paul shakes him off into the fire. Now, as is true for Paul, as is true for all Christians, what do the people do? Um, well, they think he's a god, so they misunderstand things uh, rather quickly, and it shows the fickle nature of man. But then they watch him. Um, they watch him to see what would happen to him. And you should appreciate that if, when people in particular know you're a Christian, they are watching you. They're waiting for you to stumble. They're waiting for you to fall. They're, waiting to look, they're looking for chinks in your armor. They're looking for hypocrisy. They're looking for sin. They're looking for all the things that they can criticize Christians for. Uh, and as Christians, um, we need be um, mindful of that. And the Bible tells us that we should avoid even the appearance of sin. We don't want to bring any discredit to uh, Christ, which is where people will affix it. And that's what they want to do when they see fault in you, is they want to then impute that fault as though there's something wrong with Christ or there's some problem with him. And there's no problem with him. The problem lies exclusively in us. And as Christians, we appreciate that. But we need to be mindful and try to walk circumspectly in this world and not bring criticism upon uh, the church or upon Christ. And the Lord has many admonitions about that. He says, you know, walk worthy in the vocation wherein which ye have been called. Meaning, walk, walk in such a manner that you appreciate what Christ has done on, on your behalf. So the people um, here, they go from thinking he's a murderer to thinking he's a god. And that shows you how quickly people flip around and how little they understand about what's taking place. Um, we had seen that once before with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, but they went the other way with it. First they thought he was God, and then they went out because <laughs> they were stirred up by the Jews, and they uh, stoned him and left him for dead. And that's Acts chapter 14 when he was in Lystra. You recall that he healed a man that was lame from his mother's womb, and the people thought that Barnabas was Jupiter and that he was uh, Mercurius. Um, and they brought garlands to sacrifice to him, and then very soon thereafter they stoned Paul to leave him for dead. Um, so as we continue here in Acts uh, 28, we can appreciate that there's a, a man here, uh, Publius. He is actually the chief man of the island. That's in verse 7. He's the chief man of the island. And um, the archaeologists did find an inscription with that exact language in the Greek chief man and indicating that, again, once again, the Bible is, of course, the word of God and, and everything it says is true. And um, the chief man was the... Uh, Roman, um, um, I can't think of the word they use, uh, procurator, if that's the right word, where uh, they would reign from, uh, they would, um, the one that ruled in Sicily also had Melita under his uh, dominion. And so that was the title that was, in fact, the true title given to the individual that the Romans had set um, 
in place to rule over that, that region. So there he is, and um, he opens up the... Um, he helps provide for them and takes uh, care of them. And uh, we see here that his father has a problem in terms of him being ill. He has a bloody flux, which we know to be dysentery. So his father is struggling with an illness here. Now, who is traveling with Paul? We've got two men that are traveling with him. One is Aristarchus and one is Luke. And Luke is a doctor whom we never see heal anybody in the scripture because he's always standing next to either Christ or he's standing next to Paul. And so rather than saying, Luke, would you mind going taking a look at this man here? What happens? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but this is God's grace. Um, the Luke obviously doesn't have whatever medicinal agents he might have with him. They were probably lost at sea. So there's only one thing to do. Send in Paul, uh, who um, lays his hands on him. And so we see <clears throat> Paul here as a type of Christ again, because we know that from the Levitical law, it says in Leviticus chapter 15 or in chapter 5, that anybody that has an issue running out of their flesh is unclean. And if you touch them, then you're going to be unclean too. And it actually uses the word um, guilty as well here. Verse 3, Or if he that touches the uncleanness of a man, whatsoever uncleanness it be that a man shall defile withal, and it shall be hid from him when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty. So um, the Apostle Paul goes in as a type of Christ, and he places his hands on him, and he heals him. And that would be what Christ does in terms of taking our uncleanness onto himself and imputing his righteousness uh, unto us. So we see Paul acting as a type of Christ again here. So as we continue here, they are sent on their way um, with provisions in the ship, and they are, uh, as they go, they end up in Syracuse, where I believe they are there for three days, and they no doubt preach the gospel there. Then they spend a day at uh, Regium, and then they work their way up towards, um, towards Rome. Um, when they get to Puteoli, he's still a prisoner, and yet they tarry there seven days. No doubt uh, this was an occasion that uh, was refreshing to the Apostle uh, Paul. And probably while they are there, uh, the centurion Julius may send, uh, probably sends letters up to Rome to tell them about their arrival. And having heard about that, interestingly enough, some of the Christians in Rome come down uh, to meet them. So there's several things that we should appreciate in terms of what is taking place here is that there are Christians in Rome, and they are Christians that would be in a position to receive information about uh, the Apostle Paul and Luke uh, coming up uh, to Rome. And so they go down uh, to meet them there. So one of the questions we would want to ask ourselves is how did those Christians get there in Rome? Certainly not by the Paul being there, because he hadn't been there yet. Peter, there's no evidence whatsoever of Peter having been there, certainly at this point in time, um, although some of the church fathers uh, claim that Peter started the church in Rome. There's no evidence of that whatsoever, and that, that assertion comes from Catholic church fathers in the centuries following uh, the death of Christ. So we ask ourselves, how did the gospel get there? Well, it got there from Acts chapter 2. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when all the people had come, had come down for the day of Pentecost, uh, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out into the people. Um, in Acts chapter 2, it specifically mentions Rome as a place where some of those individuals have come from. Um, you'll find that in Acts chapter 2. 
um, names the cities beginning in verse 9. And then down in verse 10, it, used, it says where these uh, people have come from Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. So the gospel went back with those people to Rome and the cities round about. We tend to think that the gospel only went to the cities that Paul went to. But no, a bunch of people were saved in Acts chapter 2 there at that, uh, when the Holy Ghost was, was poured out, and it went to all of these cities. Now, we know that Priscilla and uh, Aquila had come from Rome, and they ran into Paul um, in uh, Ephesus, I believe. And uh, they have since returned to Rome, because when Paul was in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans, and he makes mention of them in particular. Um, you'll find that in Romans... Uh, Chapter 16, I believe it is, when he's giving a salutation here. In Romans 16, um, verses 3, he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ, who have for my life laid down their own necks, but unto whom not only I give thanks, but also unto the church, churches of the Gentiles. Um, verse 5, Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. So Priscilla and Aquila are uh, hosting a church in their own home. So clearly, um, the gospel has come to the city of Rome. And there, if you read through all of the names there that are in uh, Romans chapter 16, you can appreciate that there were a number of Christians there. So the gospel has gone to Rome uh, by virtue of the Lord leading these people there. And uh, some of these individuals have come down to uh, visit with Paul and again to um, encourage him. I'm sure he found it uh, very uh, encouraging. Um, when he gets to Rome, we can appreciate that Paul is in protective Custody In verse 31, it says, Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concerning the Lord Jesus with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So he's in protective custody. And once he gets there, that the uh, Jews, he calls the Jews to come see, um, come see him. And the Jews uh, were not aware that he was uh, coming up. And uh, he comes to tell them in verse uh, 19 and 20 there that I'm not coming here to accuse the, the Jews. Um, I'm coming here to share with you, um, to defend myself before the Romans, for there's no cause of death to be found in me. And I want to share with you what is the hope of Israel, because that's the reason he's in chains, is because of the hope of Israel. What is the hope of Israel? Of course, it's the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. And so he's been preaching that from the time uh, of Acts chapter 9, when the Lord uh, revealed himself to him, he's been preaching about the hope of Israel. And he does the same thing here that he does in all of the other places when he visits with the Jews, is he opens and alleges out of scriptures, showing how Christ must needs uh, suffer and die. And um, interestingly enough, again, we see another parallel between himself and Christ, is not only does do they both minister up until their death, but... <clears throat> the Jews were the ones that um, convicted Christ, just as the Jews are the ones that um, endeavored to have Paul put to death. Christ was de declared innocent by the Romans, and Paul is declared innocent by the Romans as well, but it's the Romans who have the um, authority for capital punishment and exercise it in both cases. Christ we know obviously about, and Paul um, we infer that he was put to death uh, at the hand of the Romans. So he opened and he alleges about uh, Christ uh, to the Jews here. They make a comment here that in verse 22 says, We desire to hear of thee about Christianity, 
For as this sect is concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against, and nothing has changed. Christianity is still spoken against everywhere in the world. We know that our, the historians say that the uh, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome and then used that as a means to increase persecution of them. Um, I have no doubt there's going to be negative fallout about the COVID and about um, Christians not wanting to get the vaccine. That's going to create some trouble for the Christian church. And we know the Christian church has suffered persecution over this process because they don't want to shut down. Some pastors, as we've mentioned in the past, have been arrested and their churches have been um, chained up. They're suffering fines because they, they want to continue to obey God and meet and, and preach the gospel. So nothing has changed. The world hates Christians because the world hates Christ. The world hates Christ because it hates the one who sent him. Man is at enmity with God. He's at war with God and endeavors to... Um, destroy God's witness in this world and, and put out the light of, of Christ, um, which they cannot do. And it continues uh, to grow here. So as the Paul preaches to them, some believe, some don't, and that's the way it always is because God has to open the eyes of your understanding, which we've talked about from the book of Luke when he's on the road, the Lord's on the road to Emmaus and he preaches a gospel to a couple of the disciples. It's not until he opens the eyes of their understanding that they can appreciate all that is written in the scriptures and they appreciated who he was um, when he was with them. So then Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, basically saying that um, they're not going to get it. You're going to go to them, but you're not going to get it. And who are the ones that close their eyes in verse 27? Again, this is the agency of man, the responsibility of man. In verse 27, it says, For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are full, are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and should be converted and I should heal them. Well, we know and appreciate that God has to open the eyes of our understanding. The men here, uh, the nation there, as indeed all people that hear the gospel and don't understand it, are held accountable for rejecting uh, Christ. And so in verse 28, it says what he said before, he has ever been faithful to go to the Jew first, as it says in Scripture, to the Jew first and then unto the Gentile. So he has gone to the Jews again. And we can appreciate also in Rome here that the Jews are not stupid and that every, in the other cities Paul went to, the Jews stirred the people up and um, moved them against Paul. Uh, they're not going to do that here because they're right in the heart of Rome and the Romans had expelled the Jews once before. That's why Priscilla and Aquila uh, ran into Paul in uh, Ephesus was because uh, they had been expelled from Rome, but now they've been permitted back, and they're obviously uh, smart enough to not stir up the wrath of the Romans against them again. So they, Paul is able to live peaceably there. Certainly he's in protective uh, custody, but he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And so the book closes out here with Paul unto his death, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book closes at about 65 A.D., and we know they've got five years to go to figure this out before the Lord's going to bring the Romans and destroy them as a nation. Uh, and they don't get it, and he destroys them as a nation, just like he told them he would back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And so they've had a history of the Lord warning them about what would um, be their fate if they rejected Christ, if they were disobedient. And so God has fulfilled all of the promises to them. He fulfilled the good ones to them, even though they failed to meet their um, obligations towards him. He still blessed them as a nation. 
And people want to hang on those promises as though those are the only ones that apply to them as a nation. But he also promised to destroy them if they rejected him, and he did that. So he was ever faithful to his word. And so uh, with that, we will close out the book of Acts. Amen. Amen.